Hello, Happy New Year, and welcome to The Intersection. My name is Mark Riley, and I'm glad you are with us. This episode is dedicated to the great Sidney Poitier, legal scholar and law professor Lonnie Guineer, and Lawrence Brooks, the oldest surviving veteran of World War II, who died last week at the age of 112. We start by asking the question, how close is America to another civil war? Now, if you had asked me this question two years ago, a year ago, even a year ago, I just said, what are you, crazy? Even after the January 6th insurrection, I just said, That's a, America's not anywhere near a civil war. But yet, there are various media, various publications that are asking that particular question. So I figured I'd do a little bit of a dive on it. Uh, first, we ought to understand that the civil war in the United States took the lives of anywhere from 620,000 people to 750,000 people. It was a bloody conflict. Many, many lives are lost. And if a civil war began in the United States in 2022, many, many more people would lose their lives if it turned out to be a completely uh, armed conflict and a fight to the end, whatever the end may be. Now, Time Magazine recently published a story that said half of all people that were recently polled believe the nation is on the road to civil war. Hence, all the media articles about it. Half the nation. Think about that for a minute. Think also about the fact that for many progressives, there seems to be little or no consequence to those who fomented the January 6th insurrection. The longest prison sentence imposed thus far is five years. And one person actually wanted to go and vacation in Jamaica. In Jamaica. It's absolutely crazy. Although there was no violence to mark the anniversary, many of the groups that participated now seem ready to throw down at the least provocation. Meanwhile, the politicians who enabled the insurrection have yet to be held to account. That's right, the people who stormed the Capitol, many of them have yet, although I believe they charged 700 some odd people, but it seemed like there were a lot more than that in and around the Capitol. But they've charged 700 some odd. Uh, and many of them were charged with misdemeanors as opposed to felonies. Now, politicians on the other hand, even some of those who were running for their lives on January 6th, have come back not just to defend Donald Trump and his role, and that's an alleged role, I suppose, in fomenting January 6th, but also the idea that the people who actually participated in the storming of the Capitol were somehow noble or were some on some level doing something to further the cause of the Republic. I don't know how they get to form their lips to say that, but that's what they say. Now, there are people who stood with the people, who threatened the lives, and understand this, they threatened the lives of the Speaker of the House of Representatives and the Vice President of the United States. They brought a scaffolding with a noose on it and chanted, hang Mike Pence. To his credit, President Joe Biden gave a speech during which he called out 
his predecessor, and those around him. Great speech, just like almost a year too late. We must also face up to the fact that nothing Joe Biden says or does will move insurrectionists from their anti-American outlook. The timepiece offers five steps to avoid another civil war. But in my judgment, their conclusions, not all of their conclusions, but some of their conclusions sort of miss the mark. By time's own reckoning, 40% of Republicans who trust right-wing news are ready to resort to violence to save the country. Only 11% of Democrats stand ready to do so. That's a difference of 29%, which means to me that the GOP is far more ready to take up arms than the Democrats. Now, you might say, well, no, not everybody who's in the Republican Party is ready to take up arms. But again, there are a lot of Republican elected officials and others in the party who were ready to stand with the insurrectionists. They decry the violence. Oh, it was terrible. Oh, it was terrible. But they had a point. They had a reason for doing what they did. And they should be treated leniently because of that. Now, leaving aside for the moment right and wrong, approaching the problem of a divided America, I believe, has to start with undergirding the nation's political infrastructure. Right now, insurrectionist enablers are trying to ensure they control the government by simultaneously enacting voter suppression laws and gerrymandering congressional and state legislative districts. They absolutely must be stopped. Make no mistake about the task ahead, because that's not going to be easy to stop this. At least 163 Republicans are running for statewide positions across this country that would give them authority over the administration of elections. That's according to the Washington Post, not according to me. Their goal is to see to it that fair elections like the one in 2020 will not happen again. So the question then becomes, how do you stop this multi-pronged attack? And I think one of the things that has to be said right out front is that Democrats have to say it's a multi-pronged attack. Playing nice with these people is not going to get a free and fair election. One way, I believe, to start is by attaching the enablers to the outliers. When I say enablers, I'm talking about elected officials, other people who stand with Trump. Oh, the election was stolen. And, you know, there there are many gradations of that, including the whole thing that Dominion voting systems somehow uh, played a role in giving votes to Joe Biden that he did not deserve, which, of course, is nonsense. But when you talk about the outliers, you're talking about people who are Trump-loving elected officials, those are the enablers, to the outer fringe of his supporters. That means groups like QAnon, people like Alex Jones and the like, you know, the Hillary Clinton eats babies fringe. The enablers, like those who voted in Congress not to certify the results of the election, should not get away with trying to distance themselves from the fringe. In fact, they help the fringe push their lunacy as mainstream political thought. Make no mistake about that. And somebody, whether it's Democrats, progressives, or whatever, they're going to have to Velcro the enablers to the fringe. They absolutely must 
do so. The GOP, through the Republican National Committee, is already trying to distance congressional candidates who support Trump's discredited stolen election theory from the more conspiratorial claims. Sadly, I have to say, and it it pains me to say this, the Democratic Party has done a poor job at Velcroing the enablers to the fringe. They just haven't done a good job at it. We've got looming midterm elections coming up. In fact, Democrats, with the exception of the president, have yet to clearly define differences between them and their opposition. Add to that the intransigence of Democratic Senators Manchin and Sinema, and you have the perception of a party at war with itself. But maybe looking to everyday partisan politics to avert civil war is barking up the wrong tree. One, maybe the civil war talk is overblown. That's possible. Again, if you had approached me with this some time ago, a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, I said, what are you, crazy? So maybe it's overblown. Maybe. Do we take a chance that it's overblown? After all, unless the U.S. military is prepared to back the right wing in fighting such a war, that war would be over very, very quickly. While many in the military may be right of center politically, a mutiny at the top of the armed forces food chain seems highly unlikely. Especially since the head of the Defense Department is Lloyd Austin, a black man. Not that a black person couldn't be involved in a mutiny, but not Lloyd Austin. Not the people, not the chair of the Joint Chiefs, none of these people. And without them, without their support, a civil war would be over, in my judgment, very, very quickly. Now, if it's true, as Time Magazine posits, that a number a large number, in fact, of moderate Americans are sick and tired of the current political acrimony, it follows that they're also sick and tired of relitigating the 2020 election. Whether it be Democrats or progressives, someone or something must convince people that there is a better way to conduct U.S. politics than what we currently have. That a second civil war is even possible much less talked about by Time, CNN, The New Yorker, The Guardian, and The New York Times, is a sign of how far this great nation has fallen. It must pick itself back up and do better, and do much better. Up next, Ahmaud Arbery's murderers face justice, and for them, it was not pretty. This is The Intersection. Wherever you are, stay tuned to The Intersection with Mark Riley. Welcome back to The Intersection. Three white men faced justice last week in the murder of Ahmad Arbery. Two, father and son Gregory and Travis McMichael, got life without the possibility of parole. The third, William Roddy Bryant was sentenced to life with the possibility of parole. Without question, these are just sentences. But as Judge Timothy Walmsley put it, justice is not the same thing as closure. Here's a direct quote from the judge that oversaw this case. In this case, I think many people are seeking closure. The mother, the father, the community, and maybe even parts of the nation. But closure is hard to define and is a granular concept. 
It's seen differently by all, depending on their perspective and the prism of your lives. End quote. Ahmad's mother, Wanda Cooper Jones, was satisfied with both the guilty verdicts and the sentences. And yet, we should never forget how this came this case that is came to be. On February 23rd, 2020, almost two years ago, Ahmad Arbery was jogging in a suburban neighborhood near Brunswick, Georgia. The two McMichaels pursued him in a pickup truck while Brian followed, recording the pursuit on his phone. Now, what's interesting about this is Brian recorded this and apparently was thinking that this would justify what the McMichaels ended up doing. That's how it ended up getting released, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Brian recorded Travis McMichael blasting Arbery with a shotgun. Some may forget that the elder McMichael was a former cop who had worked in the local district attorney's office. Three different prosecutors were involved in probing Ahmad's murder. One was later arrested for violating her oath of office. A second one actually laid out a defense for the accused. Even then, it wasn't until May 5th that Brian's video surfaced. This timeline should make rational people think about whether a lot has really changed in the criminal justice system. Yes, there was justice here, but there's no guarantee there won't be another Ahmad Arbery or George Floyd, or Breonna Taylor, Breonna Taylor, excuse me. The elimination of racism is never that simple, and it's not now. Racists think they have very good reasons for behaving the way they do. The McMichaels and Brian tried to cover their racism by saying they were making a citizen's arrest, and they can. This is the thing that people should never, ever forget about this case. The McMichaels and Brian almost got away with it. Then we're looking at a lot of work that needs to be done. You know, people have been talking about trying to deal with racism for a, a good little while now. Better part of, God, what, 40, 50 years? Half century? But racism is so ingrained so ingrained and a lot of people reject this out of hand but as a black person i know it's true i've seen way too many instances of it it is ingrained in the dna of the country simple as that and it will take work well beyond the time i'm gone from here to get it dealt with and i'm talking about getting it dealt with adequately so that the murder of Ahmad Arbery is no longer seen as a special situation. These people went out and killed somebody. They were arrested, tried, convicted, sentenced to life. End of story. But how many others got away with killing black people? Historically, I don't even want to try and count. I really don't. But this case is not just indicative of justice in a singular instance. It is also indicative of the work yet to be done. Up next, are you consuming less news than you used to? Seems some folks are, 
We'll explore. This is The Intersection. Join the conversation at Mark Riley Media on Facebook. Welcome back to The Intersection. I must admit, for most of my life, at least most of my adult life, I've been a news junkie. It's what I did for a living for several decades, and even now, retired and living in another country, I wake up every morning looking at online editions of newspapers, local, national, and international. I also watch various news channels the same way. I figured once a news junkie, always a news junkie. I was therefore surprised to read a piece in the Washington Post by former Time Magazine Editor-in-Chief John Huey. In it, he says he's deliberately cutting back on the amount of news he consumes. Now, you have to understand, people who work in media, particularly people who work in the news end of the news media, consume a lot of information, an incredible amount of information. And I consider myself on the lower end of that scale but I do, you know, compared to most people, I think, consume a lot of, of media. Again, all sources. Now, what uh, John Huey said interested me because he uses social media as a news source much more than I do. I do get alerts on Twitter periodically, but not always news. I shy away from social media news gathering for the same reason Huey is now questioning it. Put simply, it cannot be trusted. If I had a buck for every crackpot conspiracy theory, nugget of misinformation, snake oil masquerading as news, I'd be a very, very rich man. I know that this information comes in many forms. Maybe I'm lucky because I've been taught to critically sift through information and compare it to other credible sources and articles. I'm sure Huey does the same. He's weaned himself off cable news and the punditry it monetizes, and to some extent, so have I. He's trimming the number of what he calls insider newsletters he subscribes to. I've already done that when I can across the pond. One thing about me, I don't read, listen to, or watch media that I agree with too often. I don't want to create an echo chamber for myself. Even with journalists I respect, there are times I will listen and watch and read journalists who I respect a good deal less, let's just put it that way. And I do that because I want to compare, I want to contrast, I want to sift through information and come to my own conclusion about different stories that are in the news. And I don't think there's any problem with that or should be any problem with that. Now, the echo chamber that I'm talking about, you know, preaching to the converted, a lot of times people call it, uh, that echo chamber is not helpful in understand, in understanding that is, how people I disagree with think. And I believe it's important for me to understand how people think, people who I disagree with. And I disagree with some people about what time of day it is. I've disagreed with friends about what time of day it is. Still my friends, though, strangely enough. 
Now, one of the problems is that maybe people should trim their news diet. My guess is that most people consume news that they feel they trust. Now, it may well be that young people are crash dieting away from the traditional news outlets. That could be because they don't think news media speaks to them, but rather about them without sufficient input from them. Still, John Huey's article made me think about whether or not my conspicuous consumption of news was hurting me like it bothered him. My answer turns out to be a qualified no. It does, however, make me sure of one thing. Social media is not something I plan to consume more of in 2022. By the time this podcast airs, the situation around tennis star Novak Djokovic should be resolved, at least hopefully. Djokovic, the number one tennis player in the world, was set to compete in the Australian Open and, he thought, be granted a visa exemption because he won't say if he's been vaccinated against COVID. The Australian government, after howls of protests from the public, rejected his visa request, and he's now quarantined in a Melbourne hotel, awaiting a decision on his appeal of his own possible deportation. Djokovic now says he was granted an exemption based on having had the virus on December 16th. The latest twist is that he was pictured without a mask in the days following his diagnosis. While his home country of Serbia has largely been supportive of his bid to compete, his camp has gone silent about the latest pictures, including one showing him on the streets of Belgrade on Christmas Day. Serbian rules required a 14-day quarantine after a positive test. Thanks again for listening to this episode of The Intersection. The executive producer of the broadcast is Ms. Kim Jack Riley. Music is by Eric Lund. Until we meet again, please stay well.